Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing a sermon series uh, that we've been in throughout the fall, uh, looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, we've called this series The Gospel of Grace. Because it is uh, in Galatians, uh, we see so much of ourselves, uh, quite honestly. The Galatian church uh, was a group of young believers. They'd started about three years prior to them receiving this letter. And already in that short span of time, we see them beginning to turn away uh, from the message of radical grace and forgiveness that Paul had founded the church upon. And to begin to wander and start to rely once again uh, on their own goodness, on their own righteousness, on their own morality, uh, to somehow earn uh, favor in one another's eyes and with God. And so in Galatians, Paul is really calling them back uh, to the message of grace that's at the very center of the Christian life and that we are called to have at the center of our life. And so, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's Word? Our scripture reading today is Galatians 3, verse 26 through 4, verse 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. If you are familiar uh, at all with the gospel accounts, if you're familiar at all with the stories, the parables that Jesus told, uh, there's one that probably you know if you know none of the others. Uh, and that is a story that begins, there was a man who had two sons. It's a story uh, that we usually call the story of the prodigal son. And it begins with a man who had two sons and the youngest son uh, comes to him and he says, Father, give me my share of my inheritance now so that I can leave. Essentially, a son saying to his father, I wish you were dead already so that I could get my inheritance and go out and live my life with your money. The story goes on and the, man find, the son finds himself. It says that he goes off into a far country, squanders his inheritance on what Jesus just leaves as reckless living. And we can use our imaginations for where that money went. 
Coming to a place of bankruptcy, he hires himself out to a local farmer. In the midst of his desperation and poverty, he finds himself eating from a pig's trough. And he looks up, it says he comes to his senses, and he thinks to himself, you know what? My father's hired servants have it better than I have it. The the servants on my father's land are living better than I'm living, so I know what I'll do. I'll go home to my father and I'll apologize. His words are dramatic that he comes up with. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me just come back onto your property as a hired servant. And now, most of us, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. I often live as though the story of the prodigal son ends right there. As though the father takes the son up on his bargain and says, okay, that seems fair enough. It's gracious. I'm gracious, so I'll forgive you. I'll let you back onto my property. I'll give you a life. I don't want to see my son dying. But now that I know what kind of kid you are, now that I know how far I can trust you, you can come back on, but you know what? There's going to be some conditions. You can come back on as a servant. You can come back on as, a, as kind of a, in a, proba- a probationary period while I see if I can really trust you. So you can come back on, but you forever are going to be my servant. So often we live as though that's the good news of the gospel. And you know what? That would be good news, right? It would be gracious of God to let us back into his good graces, apart, you know, in spite of our sin, to forgive us and to let us be his servants. But of course, that isn't the end of the story. The story goes on to say that the father, while he was still a long way off, ran out to him and embraced him. And he placed the robe around his neck. He placed the old ring of his sonship, his identity on his finger. And he said, this son of mine, not this servant of mine, this son of mine who was lost is now found. You're back. You're back as a son. God welcomes us in the gospel to come to him as sons and daughters, uh, come to a father. And Paul says in this passage that we just looked at, that there are essentially two ways to relate to God. We either relate to God as servants of God or as sons of God. Slaves and servants or sons and daughters. And I, and I think most Christians so often fall back into relating to God fundamentally as servants, where it's easier to call him Lord and Master than it is to call him Father than it is to call him, uh, in the words of Jesus, Abba, Daddy. Our spiritual life isn't marked by joy and intimacy and honesty, more often marked by anxiety and guilt and duty. Our prayer lives are perfunctory. It's a matter of doing it because we know we're supposed to, instead of marked by delight, marked by an energy to be with our Father. Our emotional lives were so often uh, racked by anxiety and fear. But to truly know God as our Father uh, has the power to change everything about our lives, right? To really understand that in Christ, in the Son, God becomes not just our distant Lord, not just our judge, not just our master, but our Father has the power to change everything about us. So we want to look this morning at this passage from Galatians And how uh, realizing that we are children of God gives us a new freedom 
a new identity, a new inheritance, and a new intimacy. First, it gives us a new freedom. Look at how Paul starts in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here, Paul is picking up on a a language that's often used in the Old Testament in which Israel uh, is called the child of God, that Israel is uh, a nation of sons of God. But Paul says that life for Israel under the law wasn't like the life of a child who's come of age and has all of his father's inheritance, but was like an underage child. And the language that he uses here draws on what was a tradition in both the ancient uh, Eastern and the ancient Roman world, which was that if a son was uh, underage and was owed a big estate, if he was heir to a fortune, heir to titles, that until he was of, of a majority age, until he had come of age, he was placed under the care of guardians, of tutors, basically, people who would uh, help him as he grew, would help him grow in wisdom and responsibility and knowledge. Uh, if something had happened to his father or mother while he was still a minor, he, he wouldn't just automatically come into ownership of his full inheritance because they understood uh, that a child wasn't yet ready for that kind of responsibility. And so Paul is essentially saying Israel under the law were placed under a system of guardianship, and the law was put in charge. This still happens occasionally. There was a news story in 1999 of a couple in the United Kingdom, the Duke and and Duchess of Northumberland, who went to court to keep their son from inheriting his fortune when he turned 18. Uh, they went to court to make it so that before he turned eight, that uh, when he turned 18, he wouldn't inherit everything. He was due to have, you know, all the things that rich English people get. He was going to get a castle, and he was going to get uh, millions of pounds uh, of an inheritance. And they said, we're not so sure he's going to be ready for that at 18. So they legally changed it so that he would go under a guardianship until he turned 25, right? For those of us who remember our 20s, maybe they should have pushed for... <laughs> for a little longer, yeah. Um, But what they knew was that he was going to need help uh, before he came into this inheritance. And so they put a system in place so that he didn't, you know, it seems like if you watch the news every day, there's some, you know, a Justin Bieber in the world who came, got into too much money too soon uh, and was corrupted in the process. And so they asked for their son uh, to be put under this guardianship. And what Paul's saying is that's basically the function of the law. The function of the law, the law is outside of us. The law can't actually change us. It can't change our character. But what the law can do is keep us from getting into too much trouble. Uh, The law can help to guide us into what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. But what it can't do is change our hearts and give us the power to actually do what it asks us to do. But he says the law is like a tutor that's put over us. He goes on in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He likens this guardianship under the law. He says that it's like we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, like Israel was enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now this phrase, uh, basic principles of the world or elementary principles, is one of the more difficult Greek phrases in the New Testament to translate. 
It's one of the more difficult passages to really come to what does it mean when Paul says you're enslaved under the law to the basic principles. On the one hand, uh, in what we think Paul is alluding to here, one thing that it means uh, is very similar to what it means in English, that there's things that are advanced and there's things that, that are more basic. And so to be under the law is to be schooled in the basics of the moral and spiritual life. Do this, don't do this, take these steps, don't take these steps. That to be under the basic principles is to be basically in, uh, in grade school of spirituality. The English Puritan William Perkins uh, described Israel this way. He says, a little school was set up in a corner of the world. The law of Moses was, as it were, an ABC or a primer in which Christ was revealed to the world in a dark and obscure manner. I love that little language that Israel was set apart like a school in a corner of the world where one group of people could learn what life with God was meant to look like and that through that, Christ would eventually be revealed to the world. And so there's a cool thing that Paul's doing here. Remember his, uh, his opponents in the Galatians churches uh, were people who were telling the Christians that what they needed to do was to go back and to begin observing all of the law. They thought that to be a mature Christian, to be a real Christian, meant that you kept the Old Testament law, especially the areas of circumcision and the dietary laws and things like that. But what Paul's doing here is he says, no, no, you think the law is the highest attainment. You think that the law is your PhD, but the law is remedial school. It's, it's going back to kindergarten, right? Some of you remember that great moment in American cinema. I believe it won several Oscars, Billy Madison, uh, which is the, the story of a grown man who's forced to go back and repeat grade school all the way up. Uh, and it's a silly, laughable Adam Sandler comedy. Um, if you haven't seen it, you really don't need to bother at this point. Um, but what Paul's saying is that it's, it's silly, it's childish, it's 10 steps backwards to say you have to go back and seek perfection uh, through the law. So that's one set of meanings of this, that these basic principles are the ABCs. Another uh, way that this term elementary principles was often used in the ancient world was that it meant the, the spiritual forces behind the world. That it was like the elementary forces of spirituality featuring the angelic and the demonic that was behind everything in the world. It was kind of, it's kind of a weird uh, way that they use this phrase. Paul goes on, actually in the passage that we're going to look at next week, to refer to the, the, uh, the Greek and Roman Christians when they go back to worshiping their pagan gods as reverting back to slavery to the basic principles of the world. And so Paul's point seems to be that whether you are zealously devoted to keeping Israel's law or whether you are a pagan Greek worshiping many gods, you are alike if you're seeking wholeness through religion, you're both enslaved. That whether it's through keeping Israel's law or worshiping pagan gods, that both are paths not to freedom, but to slavery. Because he says that you, through the law or through pagan religion, had both become slaves to these basic principles. But, in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, when the moment was just right, when all of human religion, 
both Israelite and otherwise, had ended in nothing but slavery for humanity. At the fullness of that time, God sent his son into our humanity. Paul's saying that the page of history is turned. That's that language, the fullness of time. That old era of slavery is gone and done away with. And that a new page is turned where we're marked in our relationship with God, not by slavery and servitude, but by sonship, by a relationship to him as our father. And what Paul says is that that we didn't come to the turning of that page through natural human progress, that it wasn't uh, the evolution of human religion that we learned, oh, we need to not think about God as a master, but to come to think of him as a father. No, it wasn't human improvement that got us there. It was God himself entering into our world. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born just like every single one of us in this room was born, born in the usual way uh, through a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? That means that each one of us is born under the law. We're born owing to God a life of love and obedience. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. It says that uh, every one of us owes God a life of perfect and perpetual obedience. Raise your hand, anyone, if you feel like you can sign up for the perfect and perpetual obedience plan, that you feel like your life with God, your moral life, your spiritual life has been marked by perfect obedience, never wandering, never straying, perpetual obedience, never growing tired or or seeking escape. No, each one of us born under the law has fallen short of that law. Each one of us born under the law has, has messed up a thousand times and failed to keep it. But Paul says that Jesus was born under the law and that he kept it perfectly, that born under the law, he lived the life that we owed to God, but each one of us was unable and unwilling to live to him, right? That Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, and then he died on our behalf, this language that comes in here, that he died to redeem those who were under the law. The language of redemption is the language of the slave market. It's what would happen when someone would purchase the freedom or purchase the rights over another human being. And what Paul says is that Jesus, in paying uh, the debt of our sin on the cross, purchased our lives for God, purchased us out of servitude and slavery under the law, so that we could be no longer slaves, but sons and daughters of God, no longer relating to God as servants but now under sons. So this not only ends our old identity, bringing us into freedom, but it gives us a new identity. And that's what we want to look at next, that that sonship gives us this new identity. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. No longer a slave, but a son. This is the good news of what Jesus has done for us by God's grace, that he's taken us from slavery to sonship, so that each one of us can call on God as our Father. Now, you might, uh, you might ask, aren't all people already children of God? Right? Aren't we, aren't, isn't everyone that we meet, everyone in this world, a child of God? And in the Bible, we'll talk both ways. In some ways, yes. Paul, uh, speaking and preaching in Athens, says to the gathered crowd, we are all God's offspring." Right? We are all God's children. So in some ways, as, because God is all of our creator, 
He is all of our Father. Right? We, we use this language in the same way today somewhat, that the person who makes something is called the father of it. Right? So that Thomas Edison is the father of the light bulb. Right? Henry Ford, the father of the assembly line. Right? Because God made all things, he can be called the father of all people. But there's another element of fatherhood that until we come to know the Father through the gospel, that we don't know, that we can't know. Right? We know, um, well, still, you'll, if somebody says to you, yeah, but he was never really a father to me, speaking of their earthly father. What is, we know what that means, right? He created me. He contributed uh, his portion of the making of me, but he was never a father to me, right? It means that the relational weight of fatherhood, the relational warmth and intimacy and care and tenderness, all that we load into the phrase father wasn't there. And in the gospel, God goes from being our father by creation to being our father by relationship, by being our father in terms of intimacy and identity and love and care. He becomes our father in a whole new way. And we grow to come to view our God as our father. And this, friends, this is huge, right? If God is your boss, Right? If you relate to God as your boss and master, even the best relationship with a boss uh, is deeply conditional. Right? Even if you've got the best boss in the world, I see all my staff nodding, uh, even if you've got the best boss in the world, um, if, you, if, you, if you screw up enough, you might get fired. Right? Even if your boss loves you and cares about you, if you show up for work late without telling him anything for months on end, right? your job is not owed to you uh, by virtue of him liking you. Right? A, 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 an employer-boss relationship is inherently a contract. Right? You do your end and you get money at the end of the day. You don't do your end, you may not have a job anymore. Fatherhood is completely a different type of relationship. Right When your children screw up, even when they screw up again and again and again, you don't fire them. Right? You don't, you don't terminate them. You don't say, sorry, you look, you didn't keep your edge into the, the contract. No, there's something about being relating to someone as a parent that you actually love them more when they're struggling. Right? The more they mess up, the more your heart moves out to them, the more your compassion is stirred for them, the more you want to embrace them and, and heal their pain and comfort them. And so when we relate to God as Father, it means that when we screw up, God doesn't fire us. He doesn't kick us out. He doesn't, he, he doesn't change his mind about us. But that in our sin and failings, his heart goes out to us more and more. Right? That like the younger son who returns, while we are still a long way off, the Father runs to us and embraces us and loves us. This changes uh, everything about the way that we relate to God. Being God's adopted child brings us into a new status of love that we cannot lose. We obey God not in an effort to earn his love, but out of the overflow of his love. John Newton, the great hymn writer, put it this way, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Right, A slave into a child, no longer relating to God by duty, but now relating to him by choice. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, 
You know, John Wesley was probably a better Christian than any of us before he was even a Christian. Uh, before he uh, even came to, to what he would acknowledge is faith in Jesus, and it actually came through reading the book of Galatians. These are the things that he did prior to his conversion. He started the Holy Clubs at Oxford University, uh, which was a movement of Bible studies where many people came to faith. They went to minister in the prisons and workhouses of England. They provided food and clothing and education for the poor. They did immense amounts of good. John Wesley led people to know Christ before he knew Christ. But it was not until years later that he came to trust in Christ for his salvation. And looking back, he said this. He said, I had even then the faith of a servant, but not yet that of a son. He had the faith of a servant, but he didn't yet know the faith of a son. He came to know. Uh, what it meant to be adopted into God's family, loved on the basis of God's love and grace and delight. Two people may live very, very similar lives in Christ, or uh, may live very similar moral lives. You might have two people who are both caring for the poor and giving their money away and reading their Bibles and, and getting up early to pray in the morning, but one does it out of fear and anxiety, the obedience of a slave. If I don't do this, will God still love me? And one does it out of the delight and love of a son. I can't wait to spend time with my father. I can't wait to, to express to him what's in my heart through prayer. I can't wait to serve him. And both might look the exact same on the outside. And one functionally be relating to God merely as a slave and another as a child. The gospel gives us a new identity as his children that frees us from fear and anxiety and guilt to relate to God by love. Not only that, it gives us, uh, God in the gospel gives us a new inheritance as his sons and daughters. Verse 7, you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Over and over in this passage, the language is used of being an heir to God. This is the key to one of the, the trickier parts of this passage. If you're, uh, if you're in the room and you're a lady, uh, the chances are when you heard the passage read and you heard that you were all sons of God, there was a part of you that said, hey, wait a minute, what about, what about me? Right? Can't we get some daughters of God uh, worked into this story? In some English translations, in an attempt to uh, make the language more egalitarian, do change the translation into sons and daughters. And while there are places uh, in the Bible that I think it's, it's very appropriate uh, because Paul is, or, or the writer is writing to men and women, where it's appropriate to change the language more into our modern idiom, this is one place where in trying to be egalitarian, we actually miss the radical egalitarian nature of what Paul's saying here. Look just earlier, the very beginning of our passage. Let's remember this. Uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, right? So Paul has already uh, fired a trumpet blast on, the, on this notion that somehow in the church, uh, men are of more worth or of more responsibility or value than women. He's already said, look, you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no more male and female when it comes to our value or standing before God or one another. But when he says, you are sons, what he means is that all of y'all, men and women together, 
have the inheritance of the son. So in the ancient world, uh, all of the inheritance went to the sons, right? The sons were the ones who carried on the family name, who inherited the family estate, who carried on the wealth of the father. Sometimes a wealthy family, if they didn't have an heir, would adopt a son in order to take on their, their estate when they passed away. No one would ever do that with a daughter. In that world, daughters came into their inheritance through marriage, through, through this, their husband and his family. And so when Paul says, you're all one in Christ and all together are sons, it doesn't mean that women become androgynous, right? That, that women become men. What it means is that you are co-heirs in Christ. The inheritance belongs to all of you. In Christ, all of you are the heirs. You are treated legally before God in the same way that only sons were treated uh, in the ancient world. And so all of you together, men and women together, share in the same inheritance. What is that inheritance? Paul tells us, he doesn't really get at it in this verse, he just hints at it uh, through the language uh, here of heir. But Romans 8 uh, is in many ways a parallel passage uh, to Galatians 4. And in Romans 8, he tells us a little bit more about the inheritance uh, that each of us shares in. He says in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly Uh, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, you are heirs to creation. You are heirs to all things in Jesus. That one day we are headed for a world where we will be resurrected into new bodies, no longer afflicted by disease or brokenness, where the whole world will be made new, it will become the kingdom of God in Christ, and we will rule it under Christ as the sons and daughters of the Father. That the entire world made new in Christ is our inheritance. That we are heirs to absolutely everything in this world under Christ. This is part of why uh, this notion of adoption has such incredible power to shape our lives. Right? When we, when we relate to God as servants, uh, we so often uh, relate, to, relate to our world as people who have thin skin, people who live with anxiety, people who live as though we're out to prove ourselves, to earn what's ours, to attain what's ours. And Paul says, no, no, as sons, as heirs, you already are heirs to the entire world. You already own everything, even if it's not in your possession yet. I'll give you a metaphor. When I lose money out of my pocket, it drives me nuts. Right? If you ever had that happen where you know you put five bucks in your pocket and then you sit on the couch, you go about your day, it falls out of your pocket and it just drives you nuts. I had five dollars, now I don't have five dollars and I've got nothing to show for it. <laughs> right? Imagine, imagine if you had, say, ten billion dollars in an offshore bank account and you lost five dollars out of your pocket. Now, it might frustrate you a little bit, right? We'd all rather keep money than lose money. And you didn't get that $10 billion by losing five at a time. But I think I'd, I think I'd shake it off pretty quickly. 
Right? I'd be like, ah, what's five bucks? I'm a billionaire. Right? The gospel has that power. When you realize, when you really know that you are heir, an heir to a fortune beyond anything you can now imagine, that you are loved by a father who loves you in a way that every human relationship can only be but a shadow of, then when that, that coworker at work is a little bit passive aggressive with you and, and discounts your work a little bit, instead of it ruining your day and you thinking, oh, I just, I'm, I'm an awful person, it might just bother you a little bit and then you move on because you know you've already got an incredible amount of wealth. When you sin and you fall short and you feel the sting of guilt, that sting might still be there. But you know, I haven't lost my righteousness. I haven't lost my standing before God because he already views me as perfect and whole and righteous in Christ. You are the heir of a great fortune, uh, heir of the world. And then finally, to be God's adopted children brings us into a new intimacy with God. And I love, love, love the language here in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The entire New Testament, uh, essentially, is written in the Greek language. It's been translated for you into English. But it was written in Greek. There's a few places where another language crops in uh, to the New Testament. It's the language of Aramaic, uh, which is the language that Jesus uh, mostly spoke. There's places where his disciples got so used to hearing his Aramaic word that it seared itself into their heart in a way that they continued to repeat it. Right, his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is transliterated for us into Aramaic in the Bible because his disciples never forgot it. The Son of God crying out about the abandonment of God. One other place that, that we get Jesus' Aramaic word is in this word Abba. That's translated for us uh, sometimes in the Gospels and twice in Paul. That's the, word, the Aramaic word for Papa. Uh, it's a word both of intimacy and of respect. Right? It's a word um, of familiarity and care. And it became such a big part of how they understood Jesus' relationship with his father that it got passed on. Right? Remember, Paul wasn't even one of Jesus' first 12 disciples. So this means that Mark and Peter and the others told Paul about this at some point. Paul, you should have heard the way that Jesus prayed. You should have heard the way that he talked to God, not as though he were a distant Lord, but as though he were as intimate as his own papa, as intimate as his own dad. And what Paul says is that the Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, comes into us and then through us teaches us to call God our Abba, our Father. This is an amazing, amazing gift of the gospel. Right? I think we focus so much, when you think about the gospel, so often we think about what we're saved from. Right? And, and, and we are saved, that's worth celebrating. Right? We are saved from our guilt. We're saved from the judgment of God. We're saved from hell. We're saved from some wonderful things to be saved of. But we think less about what we're saved for. And here Paul tells us what you're saved for is life in intimate union with all three people of the Trinity. In the Son, filled with the Spirit, and calling God your Father. 
embraced by the Father in a living and real and vital intimacy, learning to cry out, Abba, Father. Thomas Goodwin uh, was an English Puritan, and he tells this story, and we'll finish here. Uh, reflecting on adoption, he tells the story of walking uh, one day behind a father and a son, young fa- uh, a father and his young son, and as they walked, the son reached up and held his father's hand. So they walked down the street in that way, hand in hand. And then one moment, without warning, the father picks up the son, you know, picks him up off the, air, off the ground into the air like he can do with a small child, holds him in his arms, and says, I love you, son and then puts him down, holds his hand, and keeps walking. Goodwin says, uh, was the son any more a son of the father when he was picked up and in his arms than he was when they were walking side by side holding hands? He says, no, he was always his son. But it was when he was picked up and embraced that he experienced his sonship in a different way, where he experienced the loving embrace of the father. And Goodwin says, that's what the spirit does. It's the Father who adopts us. It's the Son who gives us the right by His death and resurrection. But it's the Spirit that gives us that experiential knowledge of God's embrace. Through the Spirit, God wraps His arms around us. He says, I love you, son. I love you, daughter. The embrace of the Father through the Son, secured by the life and death of the Son. That's what it means for us to be sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I confess, we confess, that this is a truth that so often is just an inch deep in our lives. The slightest failure, the slightest worry, the slightest slight brings us back into a position of feeling like slaves and orphans again back to a place where we feel alone in this world, back to a place where we doubt your care. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make our sonship more and more real to us. Spirit, we pray that you would work the truth of our adoption from our head down into our hearts, that more and more we would live our lives uh, in the glorious truth that we are God's sons and daughters free to obey from a heart of love, free to follow uh, our Father through devotion and gratitude and love, not out of fear and duty. Lord, we pray more and more that we would believe the truth of what you've already said about us, that we are your beloved, that we are your children. Lord, let that uh, be more and more true of us each day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.